Black to Canada is sponsored by OESeducation.org. OES Education is committed to unraveling the principles, processes, and practices that serve as the bedrock of enduring individual and corporate greatness. The objective of OES Education is to help people discover the power and energy that is within them and use it towards impacting and influencing their world. Through teaching, training, and research, OES Education has helped many individuals and institutions identify their core competencies and amplify their unique gifts and potential. OESeducation.org Welcome to the Black to Canada podcast. I'm your host, Shannon Oyanarin. Today, we are continuing our conversation with historian Sherry Edmonds-Flett, who shares more captivating stories about the Black men and women who settled in British Columbia. Let's get right back into it. Okay, so um, African Canadians in on Vancouver Island were denied access to various public facilities, such as barbershops, pubs, mm. hotels, and theaters. Backed by threats of physical violence, this was especially true of social events. In mm. one revealing instance, during a benefit concert for the Royal Hospital on September the 25th, 1861, a white man named Rickman threw a package containing one pound of flour on Mifflin Gibbs, his pregnant wife, Maria, Nathan Pointer, Pointer and his daughter for sitting in the dress circle. So in the ensuing fracas, Gibbs defended himself and his family physically. In other words, he knocked Rickman out <laughs> and was bound over to, to the courts for doing so, although he was arguably acting in self-defense. So that, that had happened. So, so yeah, so Mifflin Gibbs, um, Sylvia Stark, Julia Travis, there's um there's just uh like just an um a number of people so um yeah yeah you 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 mentioned um something very important where you know you have these um people living in vancouver and, and on salt spring island and experiencing racism and systemic racism and discrimination and you know, there's this kind of myth that people think that, you know, Black people, like our, you know, Canada doesn't have racism or that people of African descent in Canada don't experience that. And it's not as bad as in the United States. So it's really interesting to hear that you mentioned that, that, you know, even back in the 1800s and 1900s, and even before that, you know, Black people who came to this country experienced racism, um, systemic racism and, and discrimination, you know, just for the the color of their skin and and who they are and you know that's why this education is is black history is so important and to educate people and to you know let them know about the history so that people will understand where systemic racism is coming from and anti-black racism is coming from so you raise a very important point there and um, I think one of my favorite uh, stories are people uh, that lived in um, BC. Uh, is Joe Fortes. Um, can you tell us about him and, and what you know sure. about his life? Sure. What I'll do is I'll start with a bit of a background on how the, I said as the 19th century came to a close, 
a growing Vancouver challenged Victoria's preeminence in the British Columbia economy. And so mirroring this economic shift, the center of BC's African-Canadian community moved from Vancouver Island, Salt Spring to Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So according to uh, Dr. E.E. E. Machiel, who was touring Vancouver Island, the Lower Mainland in 1893 in the hopes of establishing an AME church in British Columbia, 165 people of African descent, including seniors and children, lived in Vancouver. And his informal census included 19 barber shops, eight janitors, one elevator runner, one restaurant, and one varnished factory. Mm. And so, so the railroad made it easier for couples than that to come. Mm-hmm. And, and so what happened is, is that um, Joe Fortz, um, his, his middle name is Seraphin. Mm-hmm. So he was a shoe black bartender, porter, swimming instructor, and lifeguard. He was born... February the 9th, 1863, in the port of Spain of Trinidad, and he died unmarried February the 4th, 1922, in Vancouver. Now, some sources give his birthplaces in Barbados, but an mm-hmm. auto, autobiographical article in the Vancouver Daily News Advertiser states he was born in Port of Spain. And according to another source, his father was a bar- a Bajan, a full African blood, and his mother was entirely or largely Spanish or Portuguese. But mm. the 1901 census for Vancouver lists him as Trinidadian and Spanish speaking. Mm. So at 17, he left Trinidad for England, resided for five years in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Uh, he learned to swim and became a swimmer and diver, some notes. He came to Vancouver in on the Robert Care a ship that that uh, debarked, a, you know, landed or whatever the expression is, uh, September the 30th, 1885. And mm. Vancouver at the time was booming because of the lumber industry and that. And so, so what he did, and that most of the members of the Black community lived, uh, which never num- numbered more than 300, lived in mainly what was known as Strathcona or the East End or what you were referring to as Hogan's Alley. Yes, yes. Um, so so um, for eight months until the Great Fire of 18, June of 1886, Forts ran Vancouver's earliest shoeshine stand in the Sunnyside Hotel on Water Street. Afterwards, he worked as a bartender and porter at such establishments as the Bodega Saloon on Carroll Street in Strathcona, mm-hmm. um, the Alhambra Hotel, he was known to be clean, sober, and expert mixer of cocktails. He was most famous, however, for his volunteer work as a swimming instructor and lifeguard. He was a common sight at English Bay where he taught thousands of children to swim. It was not until around 1897 that the city, in recognition of his services, put him on its payroll as a lifeguard. And at some point, he was also made a special police constable. He re- Putatively saved more than 100 people from drowning, including many children and several adults, including a man named John Hugo Ross, who would die in the sinking of the Titanic. Oh, wow. In 18, or 1905, his cottage was moved from the fil- foot of Guilford Street to the bank above the beach. Apparently, he had no family in the city, but his friend, Noel Robinson, stated in an obituary that he had a sister living in Toronto with whom he corresponded. And so he died in the Vancouver General Hospital in 1922. Mm-hmm. And it was thought that he had pneumonia that developed into months. But in the end, he had a stroke. And so the city honored him by arranging the largest public funeral ever held there. 
Thousands of people, including the mayor, several aldermen, the chief of police, constables, many ordinary citizens attended the service at Our Lady of the Holy Rosary Cathedral and, and a moment of silence was held in the city schools. In his memory, $5,000 was raised to elect a water fountain designed by Vancouver sculptor Charles Mariega, and it's standing in Alexandria Park near the beach he once patrolled, and it's simply inscribed, little children loved him. Wow, wow, what a life. And it just speaks to the different, you know, the, the Black diaspora of, you know, just different people coming, whether you're from the Caribbean, um, you know, the U United States or across other provinces coming um, to British Columbia to settle down so that, you know, the African diaspora is so, um, just the different connections. So I, I love his story and his life. And you, you, know, you talked about Strathcona and Hogan's Alley. So can you just tell our listeners a bit about that community and that neighborhood and what it signifies? And also there's a connection uh, with Jimi Hendrix as well, uh, yes. the famous uh, musician. So can you tell our listeners about that? So I I'll tell you about Jimi Hendrix's grandma. Mm -hmm. So Seattle, Washington, like, okay, in we didn't have a train that went from uh, up the, the West Coast to Vancouver, I think it didn't go over until like 1904. Okay. So, so Seattle, so oftentimes Seattle, Washington was the point of departure, last known residence, place of residence in the United States for a number of African-American women and girls who came to live in mm -hmm. Vancouver. So due to a, a series of unfortunate events, the paternal grandparents of legendary rock musician, Jimi Hendrix, 27-year-old Nora Hendricks, Nemore, and her husband, Bertram Ross Hendricks, went through hard times in Seattle from 1909 until the spring of 1911 when they moved to Vancouver. So Mrs. Hendricks was born in Murray County, Georgia, raised in Knoxville, Tennessee. She joined a traveling vaudeville stage act as a chorus girl dancer with her sister, Annabelle, whose stage name was Belle Lamar. She met her future husband on the road when they were both part of the Dixieland troupe. So they were contracted to perform at the Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition in Seattle in the summer of 1909. The troupe had been guaranteed wages, room and board, as well as the transportation back to Seattle or back to San Francisco or Chicago at the end of the exposition. However, things fell apart after the troupe divided into two minstrel companies, leaving 10 members of the Dixieland, including Ross and Nora, stranded in Seattle. So being forced to fend for themselves, the 10 troop members, six of whom were women, had to beg for assistance from the Seattle community as they did not have the financial means to leave the city or feed or clothe and house themselves. They eked out a precarious existence, occasionally receiving a day's work, the women taking in family Washington, washing when it could be obtained and only the hospitality of, of a few quote unquote Negro friends kept them from the workhouse. Work. And so Ross Hendricks was eventually offered steady work in Vancouver, and the couple left for British Columbia on May the 23rd, 1911. Mm. So now the majority of married women with children who emigrated to British Columbia worked primarily within the home. So Nora Hendricks said that her biggest job was her family. The rest of her mm. time was participating in church functions. So she was a member of the African Methodist Episcopalian Church in Vancouver. Oh, okay. And and when her husband died in 1934, Nora had to go to work. 
She made a dollar and a half her day's work that included lunch and five cents for cab fare. So she was working while her older children were in school. She took her two youngest boys to work when she was cleaning houses. And at night, Mrs. Hendricks would clean up, clean up and wash dishes at local restaurants owned by black women. Times were hard, but as Nora Hendricks said, when you had to manage, you manage. So Mrs. Hendricks' children were all born in Vancouver, and one of them was Jimi Hendrix's father. So Jimmy used to come up and visit his grandma. Wow. <laughs> so, so cool. Because his dad eventually went to live in Seattle, okay. and um, that's also where M Mrs. Hendricks, Nora, uh, Jimmy's grandmother, was eventually um, buried. Mm. I knew Jimmy's uh, auntie. Um, wow. I used to go to visit her. Uh, she, I met her in jail. <laughs> she came into the jail. So we say, you know. And so I used to go wow. visit her at Coleman in Vancouver, and when, mm -hmm. and then uh, I heard her play. Uh, she was a singer herself, and mm -hmm. I heard her play with. Um, oh, oh, I can't remember right now, but it's uh, a, a famous uh, family for New Orleans. So. And so it's just, yeah, yeah. So that's where, so that's how they were connected up. And there's a really nice, a little piece on YouTube where you can hear Mrs. Hendricks talking about going to hear her grandson play in Vancouver. Wow. Cool. Wow. Such a small world. Oh my gosh. So, so the Hogan's Alley um, neighborhood, can you tell us a bit about that? And I know a lot of um, people of African descent settled there if they came to Vancouver. Can you tell our listeners a bit about that neighborhood? Well, it, again, it had the only African Methodist Episcopalian church. So it was basically mm -hmm. a working class neighborhood. So, mm -hmm. so what, you know, so you had, you had women and men of, that were what we call in, in prison rounders, like in other mm -hmm. words, involved in the criminal element were mixing with the working class people that were working. Um, like for instance, when they were doing uh, suppers mm -hmm. to pay down the mortgage for the AME church, the sporting men, in other words, the men that were pimps and whatever, would mm -hmm. get send a bucket to get the chitlins and whatever else. So people, people all mixed together. They didn't say, oh, I'm not mm -hmm. going to talk to you because you were doing this because everybody was cognizant. Like, again, Mrs. Hendricks, you know, um, clean houses. Another woman did the laundry and her daughter did the laundry in the brothels that were in the area. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just uh, you did what you had to do to get yes. by. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was um, there were a woman that was in that community, which I wanted to talk about, was a woman named Rosa Pryor. Mm -hmm. And so she uh, she came to open up Vancouver's first fried chicken restaurant. Uh -huh, and okay. it was a matter of economic necessity, as she mm -hmm. said, because work was difficult for black men to find after two sensational incidents, incidents occurred in a five year period. So in March 1917, the Vancouver chief of police, Malcolm McLennan, and a young mm -hmm. boy named George Robb were killed by Robert Tate, an African-American police informant during a shootout. And Tate had shot himself to death before the police broke into his apartment. And mm. then the second incident was occurred in October 
1922, when Victoria Cross recipient and Vancouver Police Constable Robert McBeath succumbed to his injuries after being shot by African-American Fred Deal, mm -hmm. after Deal was pulled over for allegedly driving erratically. Deal's girlfriend was white, by the way. Mm -hmm. So Frederick Deal was convicted of murder and sentenced to hang. His sentence was overturned when he won an appeal. He escaped the death penalty when he was convicted of manslaughter at the second trial. Ooh. Nora Hendricks recalled at the time, quote, that everyone was all mad about this colored boy shooting a policeman. Well, Ooh. you know, that put a damper on where the colored boys were working in different places. It made them hard, hard for them. They wanted to bar them out. Ooh. Ross Hendricks had a, lost a job he was promised, and Mrs. Pryor's husband, Harrison Pryor, could not find a job either. As Mrs. Pryor remarked, there ain't no anybody going to do it for you. So she created her own employment. She decided to open up a restaurant that would feature her fried chicken. But first, she had to raise $100 in order to do so. So she wrote her mother in Iowa asking if she could lend her money. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, as she was waiting for her mother's reply, Mrs. Pryor was going to the race track with a well-connected girlfriend of one of the Dicer gambling men who had integrated, immigrated north. As Mrs. Pryor said, the woman had money and she needed money. So she asked her to loan her the money to start the chicken in. So this, so this woman ended up lending her the $100. So Mrs. Pryor rented a house that mm -hmm. had three rooms downstairs and rooms upstairs where she and her husband lived. And the three rooms downstairs would seat over 100 people. And the restaurant's hours of operation were from 2 p.m. to 5 a.m. At one time or another, nearly every black woman who lived in the downtown east side worked for Mrs. Pryor at the chicken inn. Things got awful bad in the 1930s, and only one girl, Mrs. Pryor, and her husband worked during that time. However, the Chicken Inn remained open for 42 years, and the menu focused on her fried chicken, expanded later to include tamales, chili, and ham steaks. So, so that was a restaurant that was located within Hogan's Alley or the downtown east side. Yeah. So, so she was really cool. So she was a big woman. And she didn't take any freaking guff. And like <laughs> I said, nearly every black woman who lived in that neighborhood worked for her at one point mm. in time over the decades, including Mrs. Hendricks. Wow. And and so people, so people didn't stick up their noses at you. They they everybody knew you had to do what you had to do to survive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And oh. and and so that's that's what made it it different. Yeah. And not. And as I said, on Vancouver, in Vancouver, there wasn't any at any time with my work, any more than 300 people of African descent mm -hmm. living there. But the other thing is, is that there was a well, again, there was a lot of people that were within the criminal element that basically when the train, when the train uh, was running, would take the train and, you know, mm -hmm. so going back and forth. So you can't exactly count those people because you don't know yeah. when they were living. I could only find people when I was looking at when they got caught, went to jail or mm -hmm. their mugshot pictures, which listed when they were, um, you know, when they got sentenced and stuff. But yeah. Um, so, so Sherry, what happened to Hogan's Alley? Is it still around? I, I don't think it is, right? It is, but it's not. Because okay. you had people moving, you had people moving away from the downtown east side. It's just mm. like 
It's just like on Vancouver Island, people move down to the States, mm -hmm. you know, and then you also had people intermarrying with whites. Yeah. You had people moving out this way. So it's not. And then what happened, the big thing that happened too, mm -hmm. was when they put in the, um, the viaduct. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that just sort of took, took it away. So now you have um, people from within the black community trying to, you know, get it centered there mm -hmm. back again or acknowledging yeah. that it had a center. But yeah. you had all kinds of like, you had, um, you had a woman named uh, Mrs. Craig who uh, moved for a time to uh, Montreal, was part of the Black Cross Nurses, part of the Marcus Garvey, uh, mm -hmm. Marcus Garvey movement. She, uh, there was also, we also had, um, you know, the National Association for Colored Women's Clubs. There was a branch in Vancouver. So, mm -hmm. you know, there was, it was pretty strong. It was neat to get all that material and find where yeah yeah and before I let you go we've had such you've just provided us so much knowledge and information about you know black history in British Columbia but uh last question I wanted to ask is what would you want you know Canadians or just people to know the most about black history in British Columbia what what um, would you say is like the top thing or that you want people to kind of take away about black history in the province that they lived in British Columbia, mm -hmm. that they were people that were flexible, people that were survivors, people mm -hmm. that of different, of different, uh, you know, they were working class, mm -hmm. there were middle class, there were upper class, there were that they were people that did what they had to do, and mm -hmm. and they lived here and were an integral part of the community, yeah, and. So just because you don't see a sizable black population, mm -hmm. it, it still it existed. And I also think that we need to honor, yeah. honor them. So one of the things I'm trying to do with the BC Black Historical Society mm -hmm. is like I spoke with them in, in I think it was February or something of Black History Month. And they were going to give me an honorarium. And I said, no, what I'd like it to go to is where we digitize where the graves are we fix up the mm. graves i really think that we need to do digitization of the records yeah. and of the concrete places where people lived or where mm -hmm. they're buried so that so that we keep that for the people that come and also in my family that's what we do my mom mm. we clean up our graves we mm -hmm. give them flowers so Whenever I go and I'm researching people, whatever I go, I acknowledge where they mm -hmm, came from. Mm -hmm. I give them flowers. I clean up the graves. I do whatever yeah. I can do because that's what you do. Yeah, you give that respect, respect, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that that's really important just because, and I also think it's really important, again, Mm -hmm. as a, as a person that does a lot of anti-racist work mm -hmm. I think it's really important for people to know uh you know where people came from yes. like I'm not I'm not African Canadian I'm an ally mm -hmm. but I'm not African Canadian so I can't what I can do is I can give my research out I can say this is what I found but mm -hmm. I'm an ally but what I can do 
is I can work with, when I hear white people talking about mm -hmm. uh, white privilege or white supremacy, or whatever, I can, I need to stand up mm -hmm. and say why it is and stand up and be counted. Mm -hmm. And so I think that part of my work, as much as it's going towards and should be for the community, it's also to educate whites. Yeah. Because they need yeah. to freaking know. Yeah. Yeah. And so we I, need allies, right? Allies are very important, yeah, you know, and, to move the work forward. Yeah. So like I see myself, like my girlfriend, Afua Cooper, I met her in 1990. Oh, and wow. I said to Afua, I said, you know, she's like in an indigenous community. She's like a medicine woman. And I'm mm -hmm. like, I'm like somebody who's learning from her. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and so I just, that's what I think. And I, um, yeah, it's just support to me. So I have about a month left of work to revise my thesis. So then I'll graduate. Oh, Afua, awesome. Afua wants me to get it published. Then yeah. she also wants me to have my BA honors or my MA thesis published about Kingston. Yeah. And then, um, but what I also do is I do a lot of work within prison. Okay. So like I have a friend of mine who was a dear friend of my husband, Glenn's, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. his name is Chico Stevens. And so he, his family comes to Nova Scotia. He was born in New Brunswick. He okay. was in the Nova Scotia home for colored children. He was in a place mm -hmm. called Kingsclare. And so he has the first, like there's a, for, for indigenous people who are in custody and usually prior to getting sentenced, they have what are called Gladue decisions, which looks mm -hmm. at the impact of systemic racism on their life. Mm -hmm. So when I found out, I'd known Chico for 30 some odd years, didn't know he'd been in the home for colored children or whatever until 19 or 2019. Mm -hmm. So I looked to see if there was something that was equivalent to a Gladue decision for people of African descent. Mm -hmm. So I found what are called cultural assessments or IRCA. It's Robert Wright in the People's clinic in Nova Scotia so I talked mm -hmm. to Mr. Wright and he agreed to have one done on Chico so that's done that's the first one done post-sentencing to look at the impact of racism mm -hmm. on a person of African descent who's in custody and has been sentenced so mm -hmm. I so I do a lot of current work awesome. yeah. but it it mixes up with my academic work yeah. Because this woman who did a CA on me, a community assessment on me, mm -hmm. talked about how Chico's grandmother was a, uh, what is it, ran a bootlegging place. Mm -hmm. So I wrote out a thing and explained that she was, had clean white people's houses where you don't make jack in mm -hmm. terms of money. And then like here in, in the West Coast, when you live in the working class community, you know the people who are, are um in the life and not. And so she had a bootlegging establishment where she made enough money to support her family because mm. she didn't have the opportunity to do anything else except for clean white people's houses. Mm. You know what I mean? So there's, yeah. so my, so my historical work also works with my social justice work. Yeah. And that's important. That's important. I, I find that too with even my work, you know, just doing my PhD now and, and the community I work that I do, like it, you know, it's intertwined and they work well together. So that's amazing that you're doing that as well. But 
how can people, you know, reach you, Sherry, or follow you and your work? And just, you know, if they want to get into contact with you, what's the best way to get in touch with you or to follow you? Okay, so I'm on Facebook as Sherry, S-H-E-R-R-Y, Edmonds, E-D-M-U-N-D-S, hyphen, flat, F as in Mm -hmm. Frank, L as in Larry, E's and Edward, T as in Tom, T as in Tom. I'm also on Twitter. I am also, they can, my cell phone is 604-852-5514. And my email is seflet at telus.net. So S-E-F-L-E-T-T at telus.net. And then my home address is 33270 14th Avenue. Mission BC, postal code is Victor two Victor four zero seven. So that's all my your contact. Thank you, mm-hmm. awesome. Thank you so much, Sherry, for your time, listeners. I hope that by you know hearing today's episode and listening to Sherry and her wealth of knowledge about the rich Black history in British Columbia, that you know you are able to learn something new and learn about different individuals and families who helped to build the province of British Columbia. So thank you so much. Join me next time on Black to Canada. Overcomers. Might I add, it is in our DNA to overcome. Our melanin tells a story of matchless beauty and perseverance. Listen as we journey. See, our skin has always been more than what meets your eye. It's deeper than that. Like treasure immersed in the depth of the sea, buried underneath, hidden. But has never lost its value. See, the pressure of our oppressors could never cancel a people chosen to exist. We always rise above, finding our way to the surface where you can't miss our glow when the sun hits. Our melanin tells a story of long-suffering partnered with a passion to see change. Pressed down, stifled and silenced, still we have found our voice joined together distinctively with the hand of god hear our outcry of hope as we journey black to canada